Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Hello, welcome along. Not sure about you. It feels like we've been here on Earth for a bit too long. So let's travel all around the universe to find out some secrets in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Yes, hello, my name's Dan. This is the show where we learn all the incredible science that is lurking around the solar system, this galaxy, and even further than that. This week, we'll hear all about some amazing animal adventures that they go on to get heat or to get food throughout the year with wildlife genius Philippa Forrester. Zooplankton. I mean, these are so small that you can't see them without a microscope. But every day, they make one of the biggest migrations on the planet. So every 24 hours, they're in the ocean. They swim up to the surface of the ocean. And then they feed, and then they go all the way back down to the depths of the ocean. Also, you can take a trip to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, to learn about what lightning really is. I'm fed up with this storm, Professor. Is there a planet somewhere, like, where it never rains? Well, you could try Mercury. It never rains there, but that's because it's baked to a crisp. So would you be. I've got your questions to answer this week. They are on earthquakes, Mars quakes, Venus quakes. Also, what happens with phones when they've been dropped in water? That's on the way. And our Dangerous Dan this week is an impossible snake. It's all coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start with this week's Science in the News. Now, a few days ago, a newly discovered comet made its closest journey to Earth. It's a trip towards us that took 50,000 years. It's a green comet because it looked like an emerald streaking across the sky. The comet was made of mostly ice and dust. And as they get closer to the sun, the ice melts, which gives it that famous comet trail that streaks across the air. And we've only just learned about this. Experts have been tracking its movement I really like the fact that space geniuses all over the world are looking up at the sky, figuring out what's coming next, where things are, tracking movements of rocks floating around for about thousands of years. Also, a 16-year-old from Somerset in the UK is trying to travel all around the country in the fastest possible time on an electric boat. Harry Besley wants to show how brilliant EV boats can be, that they're sustainable and that we need more of them. He will go around Wales, across to Northern Ireland, through Scotland, then back down, stopping at 40 charging stops along the way to charge up his boat. He said that he loves sailing, he loves using boats, but he he was always a bit irritated at how much damage the fuel might be doing to the environment. And I love the fact that he's taken this idea and he's going so far around the entire country to prove that it can be done. Well done, good luck, Harry. Also, talking about incredible records, a British army officer has broken a world record heading to Antarctica. Preet Chandy, Polar Preet, broke the record for the longest solo and unsupported trek to the South Pole. Now, she travelled for 922 miles on her own in 70 days. 
in the snow and the ice and the frozen air to make it to the South Pole. She did that completely unsupported, alone. Not just that, it's the second time that she's done it. She broke her own record. It's just fantastic work. Brilliant stuff, Polar Pre. It's time to spin the wheel of the A to Z of engineering. For the last few weeks, we've been running through the alphabet, learning about amazing feats, people that make stuff, what they make, how they make them, all with engineering. We're headed to the Engineer Academy. So let's catch up with Engers, our engineering expert. We go through everything from acoustics to zoos in the A to Z. Let's spin the wheel and find out what letter we're learning about today. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's L. And L is for lighting. Thanks, Engers. Let there be light. If you add up the hours over a year, we only have daylight on average half of the time. So when it's dark, we need to make our own light. If we didn't have artificial light, we wouldn't be able to see where we are or where we're going, read a book after dark, watch TV or play a computer game. And don't forget the most important light of all in our fridges. Without that, we'd never find that tasty morsel at the back. Most man-made light used to come from candles and then light bulbs. But today we use LEDs for light in our homes and schools. The street lamps that keep us safe on the roads, the light that help dentists see into our mouths, and not forgetting dazzling light displays at the theatre and concerts. And there's a type of engineering that specializes in lighting. Over to Engers to tell us more. Thanks. Being a lighting engineer is a very varied job. They might be designing new light sources or what we call luminaires. That's light fittings which we use to light our homes, shops and offices, as well as outdoor areas like stations, city squares, main roads and motorways. And then there's also specialist lighting for things like film sets, concerts and sports stadiums. And there's one thing that all these places have in common. It's the light itself. Without a lamp or an LED... And there was no light. To produce light, we used to use lamps, sometimes known as bulbs. Over many decades, these were developed enormously to produce more and more light. Today, we use LEDs, as they produce a lot of light but use a lot less energy and less heat. They also come in many different shapes, sizes and colours, helping designers create interesting light fittings, which allow us to change the mood of our rooms. And don't forget, it's not just lights that have LEDs. There's the standby button on appliances, the screen on your mobile phone and, don't forget, your torch. Lighting engineers will have helped develop all of these. To do so, they need to know about materials and how we can convert electricity into light. They also need to understand how lights behave, like how bright they will be, how warm they might get, and how much energy they'll consume. We need lots of different types of lighting for our daily lives. Did you know there are different colours of white light which can change how we feel? Cool white light is bluer, and it's similar to daylight. It helps keep us awake and alert, and at our most active. It's mostly used in offices, shops and sports pitches. Warm white light with more yellows and oranges is more relaxing, comfortable and is better in the evening to help us rest and sleep. 
Cafes and restaurants use it to welcome us in. Maintaining lighting systems is vital for business and also to keep us safe on the roads. And that's another part of the job. Whether refitting a factory or designing updated motorway lighting. Now, that's all serious and sensible stuff, right? But there's another role called a lighting designer. And that's someone who's a little bit more, well, showbiz. Thanks, Engers. And that's our take on the letter L. It's been lovely. If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out lead testing, load or lubrication engineering? Why not check out lead testing, load or lubrication engineering? Engineer Academy, created with support from the Royal Academy of Engineering. If you would like to find out more about the A to Z, visit funkidslive.com slash engineer. We will spin the wheel to find out another letter in the amazing A to Z of engineering at the same time in next week's podcast. Right now, uh, let's do my favourite bit of the podcast, where we answer your questions. If there is something sciencey rattling around your brain that you need sorting, dead easy. Just get to funkidslive.com. We've got a big button on the Science Weekly page there. You can record your question, let me know who you are and what you want to find out. Let's see who's done that this week. Hello. My name is Nestrine and I'm seven years old. And my question is, are there earthquakes on every planet? Bye. Nestrine, thank you for this. Uh, a few planets do have quakes. We can't call them earthquakes because they only happen on Earth. But we know that Venus, Mars and even our moon get quakes when the blocks of rocks that they're built from shift and move because of pressure underneath. Now, we know that these bits of rock move because on Mars and Venus, you've got mountains and valleys, and that's how those are made. The tectonic plates shift together. They squeeze like ours do. They push up and down to make mountains or valleys. Now, you can hear more about quakes on Mars. Only a couple of weeks ago on this very show, we chatted to a planetary seismologist who told us all about NASA's mission to study quakes on Mars. Those are called Mars quakes. Uh, You can hear all about them. It's in the episode from the 21st of January called Keeping Cool with Snot Bubbles and a Big NASA Update. Have a listen on your podcast feed and you can find out loads more about Mars quakes. Yes, they do happen. We don't know if all planets have them, but we know that a few do. Let's get another question on then, something you have sent through funkidslive.com. Who's this? Hi, my name is Pia. I'm four and three quarters. And um, my question is, how do we get phones fixed after they've been in water? Pia, thank you so much for the question. Well, the normal way to fix your phone if it's been dropped in water is to turn it off completely and then put it in rice. Even take the back off it if you can. The rice will try and suck out and absorb all the water that might be stuck inside. Rice is quite dry. The water naturally will move to the rice. It's interesting why water breaks electronics like phones. It's because when it gets in, it acts like a conductor. Now, in your phone, you've got a circuit board. Electricity is only meant to go on a special path in there, a created circuit which turns things on. If water gets in there, it acts as a superconductor, it moves the electricity to places that it's not meant to go, which overloads the circuit board and it fries everything. So if you drop your phone in water, turn it off straight away to stop the power, 
then put it somewhere that can dry it out. Most people use rice. It sucks the water out. It absorbs it. And then, fingers crossed, it tries to make it work again. For this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most mean and cruel things in the universe, we are headed to the jungles of Asia to talk about one snake that can get you when you least expect it. Now, when you think of snakes, you imagine them slithering along the ground or wrapped around branches waiting to strike. There is one type of snake that does it in a completely different way. Say hello to the flying snake. Guess what it does, guess what it does, guess what it does. We'll get to that part in just a sec. Uh, These carnivorous reptiles are normally a greenish-yellow colour with black stripes running across its body. It's got wide, dark, menacing eyes. They're found around Asia known by how they escape predators. They've got a fantastic skill which lets them wriggle up tree trunks, slithering along branches, and then, if they need to move quickly to get away from something that's hungry, they do something that no other snake does. They leap. Scientists don't know exactly how they manage it, but their one body, the huge muscles, they twist and turn and squeeze, and then they leap. Well, they fling themselves through the air. They don't have wings or anything, so... (laughs) they can't do it particularly well but they rely on winds and currents of air to lift them through the sky so they could land on another tree so they can wriggle away amazing the fact that that works that they can properly judge distance and wind and leap across them is brilliant they're venomous too with a mild poison that they use to stun their prey but they've got quite small teeth so they don't do much damage to us humans but you won't think about that if one leaps through the air and hurls itself towards you. And that's why the flying snake goes straight on our dangerous Dan list. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week we're talking about animals moving all around the world and why they go from one place to another with a TV presenter, a wildlife genius and the author of the brand new book, Amazing Animal Journeys. Philippa Forrester joins us. Philippa, thank you for being there. Thank you for being there. (laughs) We could, in fact, journey between one and the other, couldn't we? (laughs) We could go back and forth and back and forth. So Amazing Animal Journeys is the book. Why, straight off, why do loads of creatures dedicate so much of their year to travel almost the entire planet away to spend different seasons in different parts of the globe? Lots of those journeys we're really familiar with. The swallows, for example, that we see in the summer, we know that they're too small and they can't cope. There's not enough food for them in the winter. So they have to migrate down to places like Africa um, and follow the summer, basically, which sounds like a nice life to me. Um, But that means that they can survive to come back here and breed in our summer. If you have to travel across deserts half the world away to get some food to get some water why do they need to return to have babies Philippa? So there's lots of reasons as I said for different journeys but it's usually about chasing the right conditions whether you're an insect or a mammal it's usually about chasing the right conditions to breed 
where there's good food available and water, drinking water. If you think about some of the longest elephant journeys, for example, are in search of water and those massive wildebeest. Oh, I've just seen a fox run past my window in the garden. He's off somewhere. He's off somewhere, probably in search of food, frankly. But yeah, all of the animal journeys really are about finding the right conditions to thrive in. And usually thriving involves having young and and bringing them up. Talking about the fox outside your window there. It's amazing when you think about animals, isn't it? That they really are doing two things with their life. They're either sleeping and staying safe or they're on the move. They have to be on the move to get food, to hunt, to find prey. They can't just rely on uh, m- uh, mum and dad getting food from the cupboards like like we can. It is really amazing when you think about these journeys that even the fox is taking outside your garden by your vegetable patch right now. It's really interesting. We hoard our food in our houses, our fridges, fridges and cupboards, but we still have to make a journey to go and get that food and bring it back. Think about forest ants, for example, those leafcutter ants. They still have to go out into the world to find leaves, cut them up and bring them back to the to the huge ant nest. In the book, you've looked at so many different types of animals and the amazing journeys that they've made. Uh, When you were researching it and, and looking up all these creatures, what were the animals and their journeys which really surprised you because it was almost nothing like a journey you could imagine. Oh, so many. And it was so much fun. I'm going to do a massive clangor of a name drop here, but I can remember talking to David Attenborough once. Bang, there it is. And I had done my degree in environmental conservation. And of course, you know, he he had done many, many, many years of making natural history programs by them. And he said that one of the things he loves about the natural world is that you are always learning new things. There's so much information. So the ones that surprised me, well, wolves, I know very well. I've written a book about wolves. So I thought I knew wolves really well. So I was thinking, I wonder if there's a different kind of journey that I can find here other than the obvious going off and hunting journeys that wolves make. And I found in my research two different wolves one in Europe and one in America, uh, who in the same year, at about the same time, they were about the same age, two male wolves, young male wolves, left what's called their natal pack, you know, their family pack, and set out on a long journey alone, not knowing where they were going. Now, thanks to modern technology, both these wolves had radio collars on. And one ended up, the one in America, ended up in California. He was the first wolf there in over 100 years, so made history and started a new family there. And the wolf in Europe went all the way from Slovenia across the Alps and ended up in Italy and was the first wolf there in about 120 years and started a new pack there in Italy. So they had these, both of them, really historic, momentous journeys, you know, crossing really hard landscapes, farms, motorways, uh, mountains. And both of them at around the same time were responsible for settling wolves back in an area they hadn't been for a hundred years. That was a lovely comparison to me to see that all over the world, these things can happen. And then there were things like zooplankton. I mean, these are so small that you can't see them without a microscope. 
but every day they make one of the biggest migrations on the planet. So every 24 hours, they're in the ocean, they swim up to the surface of the ocean, and then they feed, and then they go all the way back down to the depths of the ocean. And then there are so many fish and whales and other animals relying on those zooplankton that they affect journeys across the whole ocean of other animals and creatures as well. I've mentioned that you're a wildlife expert and your family life has been dedicated around finding amazing creatures where they live, travelling all around the world, in everything that you've seen around the planet. What was the moment that more than any other that took your breath away? There are so many, and that, I, I would say, is one of the other joys of being interested in wildlife. Yesterday evening, for example, we were sitting in our living room, and my son is a falconer, so he had a peregrine with him on his arm. I had the cat on my lap, and the dog was lying on the sofa. <laughs> a peregrine, only the fastest bird in the world. Yeah, that's yeah, amazing. That, that was one moment right there, just being surrounded by animals. You know, every time I see an otter, for example, you're so lucky to see them that it feels so special. It's like a photograph in your mind. Or I've been lucky enough to see whales, orcas in Shetland, for example, which I honestly was so determined to see and spent days and days and days driving around trying to see them and nothing. Finally got on one little ferry between the islands. And the friend I was with said, well, we're never going to see them now. I mean, that's it. You know, this is, you know, we're in shallow water. We're never going to see them. I got a hot chocolate out of the machine. As I was putting the hot chocolate down on the table, glanced up out of the window, saw a massive orca dorsal fin rising from the surface. It was a big bull orca. And I went, orca, right there. And everyone went, yeah, yeah. And I went, no, look, quick. (laughs) And um, they were, yeah, they were there right by the ferry. It was extraordinary. So, you know, you have to look, you have to have hope, but there are so many moments and it's not always the big moments. Sometimes it's it's little moments. This orca, who knows the journeys that they were making. Well, if you're listening, you can find out more. It's this brand new book, Amazing Animal Journeys. It is stunningly illustrated as well. So bright, so vivid. It's beautiful, isn't it? They've done such a great job. I, I, I promise listening in, you will learn loads about these creatures, all thanks to Philippa Forrester. Philippa, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. It was good fun to spend time with you. Let's finish up this week with a trip to deep space high. We say the longest adventure through actual space, but right at the end of the podcast. Uh, every week we fly up to deep space high. It's the smartest school in the solar system. They've got all sorts of lessons there. One of them, they've got this big window which looks right down onto Earth so they know everything about our planet because they've got a bird's eye view. This week, Professor Pulsar is teaching us all about lightning storms. Did you know that Jupiter gets huge storms and even bigger lightning? Deep Space High, Earthwatch, with support from the Royal Astronomical Society. this storm professor is there a planet somewhere like where it never rains well you could try mercury it never rains there but that's because it's baked to a crisp so would you be don't knock storms sam they're all part of what makes earth a planet that can support life whoa 
Whoa, did you see that lightning? Phenomenal. I was hoping we'd get a bit of lightning. Come on, Sam, let's go inside the rain cloud. It's cold up here. Well, things may be about to get a lot warmer. Have you heard of the water cycle, Sam? Uh, yeah. Rain falls, water in the puddles evaporate back into the clouds, where it cools down and turns back into rain. The water goes up and down, over and over again, basically. That's right, isn't it? Yep, that's the fella. Well, all around us, molecules of water are passing each other. This is creating an electrical charge with positive particles rising higher and negative particles dropping to the bottom. As you know, opposites attract. And way down there on the Earth, positive particles are reaching out to the negative ones. And when they connect... Wow, it's like a massive fiery path appears. They joined up. The temperature of lightning can get hotter than the surface of the sun. And that's why when lightning hits things, it can cause so much damage. Um, can we go back indoors now? I don't fancy getting hit by the next lightning strike. So how can lightning be a possible sign of life on other planets? It seems more like something that burns and destroys things. Because normally, you don't get lightning without one very special ingredient. Can you remember what that might be? Well, it's just water. Just water? most precious substance in the universe well it is if you want to stay alive when we see lightning around other planets it can give us a clue that there may be water in the atmosphere and the size of a storm can give us information about the atmospheres too isn't jupiter meant to have a lot of storms on it jupiter has some of the most amazing storms of all the biggest ones are around the dark side of the planet because its air pressure is higher and gravity stronger, rain clouds are three times as tall as the ones we get on Earth. This means they get giant lightning. Giant lightning! Wow, that sounds cool. Or should I say, hot? Very hot. But there's something to see, I can tell you. Here's a sports joke for you. What does a cloud wear under his clothes? Thunderpants. And children should be seen and not heard, especially if they're going to tell jokes like that. Deep Space High, Earthwatch, with support from the Royal Astronomical Society. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash deepspacehigh. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got a question that you want answered, easiest way, get to funkidslive.com. Find the Fun Kids Science Weekly page. There is a big recording button. Click that and ask away. And I will see if I can solve it next week for you. You've heard some brilliant series today. What if we had Deep Space High, The A to Z of Engineering? You can hear loads more and different shows on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. They're on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. All right. Um, it's got some amazingly pink and white flowers. The leaves look quite kind of like um, kind of furry, you know what I mean? 
It's a warm spring day in late March, and ever since the leaves have started to come out, Roby Joe has been wondering why some trees lose their leaves and some don't, and also like how the trees know when it's time to shed their leaves. To find out, join us on the conversations, Curious Kids, wherever you get your podcasts.